Joshua 10. Now it came to pass when Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and how had, had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king. So he had done to Ai and her king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly because Gideon was a great city as one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai <coughs> and all the men thereof were mighty. Therefore, Anizadek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hoham, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japia, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. Therefore the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, and they and all their hosts encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua, to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, fear them not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. For there shall not a man of them stand before thee. Joshua therefore came up unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way that goeth up to, to, to Beth-Heron and smote Azekah and to Makadah. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were in the going down to Beth Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. And there were many more which died with hailstones than they from the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said, in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people were, had advanced themselves upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hastened not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like it, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. And Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp of Gilgal. Before we continue, let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we opened your word once again, those ancient words we sung about, we thank you for preserving it, for giving it for us. We thank you for Throughout all of history, Lord, when it, since it was written, you have uh, given it to your church. Father, we think of the blood that was shed by some, Lord, as they protected your word and as they brought it to many different places. Father, would you open our eyes as we read it? Would you apply these words to our lives? And would you help me? In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So last time, we looked at how we got here and how the Gibeonites and why they had made this peace treaty with Israel. The story was of stealth and deceit. These people were desperate, and through lies, they got themselves into a covenant with Joshua. When their lies were finally exposed, they did find themselves that, that, or Joshua did keep the covenant for them. But the rest of their lives, they would be slave laborers or servants to Israel. And they would be working in the tabernacle, hauling water and wood. But that was better than certain death. Yet in the end, they showed a true humility. They were sorry for what they did, and they showed a willingness to Joshua and to the people of Israel. And Joshua, and also us, since this is written for us as well, had also learned something because he had forgotten to seek the Lord and to pray and to ask him for direction in this matter. He had trusted in his own wisdom, as we can all do. Even though he had access to the Lord directly at the high priest, he trusted in his own reasoning, as he had done before when they trusted in their own strength with Ai. So in this section, we see the aftermath of this treaty. And we find in the two first verses the reaction of the king of the south. Previously, in chapter 9, the, the first two verses, we saw that the king of the north were also working together against Israel, but now we see the kings of the south. So Gibeon was kind of in the middle of the north and the south. There were trade routes there, Jerusalem was there, and it was right smack in the middle of the nation. So Gibeon was sort of that wedge, and now Israel had peace with the Gibeonites. So there was a wedge in their plans of simultaneously destroying Israel. Notice in verse 2, unlike, or the first two verses, unlike Rahab and the Gibeonites, the king, the, ring, the ringleader here, uh, Adonizedek, did not attribute those victories to the God of Israel. To Rahab, since Rahab had done that, even the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites had even quoted Moses. Actually, some of them probably knew the Bible better than some of the Israelites who were stubborn by nature. <clears throat> yes, they had gone about it the wrong way. Yes, they had brought it, they had done it deceitfully. But they did it because they felt this was the best way, that doom was coming. And they believed the word of God when it came to Moses saying they should all be destroyed. And note with this king, there is no much, there's no such thing with this king. There's no thought of God. And he definitely did not live up to his name, which means Lord of righteousness, which he had likely chosen for himself, as they did. And one of the tribes that he depended on as well was now at peace with God, at peace with Israel. They were a powerful ally and now had gone over to the other side. They had been sorry for what they had done, the Gibeonites, and in a mysterious way, by the providence of God, they had stumbled into a covenant with the people of God, and God had showed them mercy. It shows once again that God can use our sin for his mercy, to display his mercy and for our good. 
So fear was, was upon them. It was great, not only because of the utter destruction that Ai and Jericho had, had had, but now one of their own tribes had deserted them, had betrayed them in their view by crossing over to Joshua. The, right, the writer tells us that his fear was amplified because Gideon was a great city. It was a, a royal city, and they were afraid. It shows us once again the long war of sinners against God. And they will not go to him on their own accord. The fear that was in them drove them to war against God and Israel. So he calls upon his countrymen from the south to deal with this situation, figuring that if we band together, we can get rid of this menace, we can get rid of this wedge between the north and the south, and so reposition a spot in the middle and deal with Israel later. And notice too that in the providence of God, it was particularly this tribe, this tribe at that spot that had gone to Joshua in this way. Strategically located, it was a larger city, influential bunch. So we can see once again that the details of life, even the things that are questionable, are in the hands of the Lord. God knows the failure and the wickedness of these people, of, of Israel and of Gideon, but he uses it for his own glory. So the five kings agreed together, and they came together, and they saw the danger of the situation, and they figured we'll go to this traitor, Gibeon, and smite him out of our midst once for all. Probably also making an example of them, lest everyone else, anyone else there in the area would do the same thing. The fear that they had was not the fear, again, of Rahab and Gideon. And what they thought would be a great plan would ultimately work against their swift demise. Actually, it speeds up that process. Proverbs 11:21. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. One of the lesser known verses of the British anthem goes like this. It's kind of a prayer. It says, O Lord, our God, arise, scatter thy enemies and make them fall. Confound their politics, frustrate their navish tricks. On thee our hope we fix. God save us all. And we see here too, and we, the, the chapter goes on, of course, the end of these kings and what they thought was wise and good to do. They rebelled against God, lifted up their fist against him, and they were all destroyed. Notice in verse 4, King Anizadek summons up and asks these other kings to help me, to come over and save me. No doubt he was most worried about his own skin, and he became a ringleader in standing against the people who were now under divine protection. Again, it's a picture of man's sin and his war against God. They had heard of the miracles in Ai, in Jericho, and other places. But like the Pharaoh, their heart was hardened, and God also hardens hearts so that their destruction would come. Unconverted soul this morning, is that you? 
Do you think you can outrun God? You can outmaneuver him? You think your sin will be making exemptions for? May these kings be a warning to you. Or you will likewise perish. In verse 6, the kings agree to unite in a type of a desert storm action operation. And the nations went up. And every king, even the king themselves, they were there with all their forces combined. Humanly speaking, Gideon was in a dire strait. What would be a way out for him? A few days ago, things looked quite good. They had been under the curse. They ought to be destroyed. But they had gotten a peace treaty. They had gotten a peace treaty with an unbeatable force, Israel, and more importantly, with the God of Israel. How this picture is the warfare we are in when we align with Christ, we come to the Savior as beggars. We bring our sin, and we look for him for that blessed relief from it. We look to his work on our behalf on the cross. And that's when the battle starts afterwards too, isn't it? Just like this, these Gibeonites had made their peace with God and Satan steers up others to go against them. The ink was barely dry on the piece of paper they had signed and Satan steers up these men. So does he with us. In a thousand different ways, each one in particular, he goes after us. It's a spiritual warfare. <clears throat> the world will, will hate you, the Lord Jesus says, when you follow me. And sometimes, like Gibeon, it seems to be those that are close by. The Lord Jesus said, even the man of your own household shall be against you. And that is difficult. And the further we go in our walk, the more the enemy meets us, especially if we are serious about our walk. We want to be serious about reading or the word or prayer. We always seem to be distracted with something else. The Gibeonites had alienated themselves from their former countrymen, but they had placed themselves under the care of Joshua. Well, what was the Gibeonites' response to this dreadful situation? Imagine yourself in their shoes. There's five nations around you, some of them former friends, maybe distant relatives, are now gathered against you. They have swords, they've got chariots, they have well-trained men, and sure, you've got an army too, but they're quite a big group combined. And the men know how to fight. Not only that, but the nation that you signed a peace treaty with wasn't particularly happy with how you went about it. You went about it in a deceitful way. So you could imagine they start to reason, weighing their balances, and start saying, well, we're good at negotiating. Maybe we should try that again. Five nations against us, that's too much to handle. Let's talk about another covenant, perhaps. Maybe we can switch back. Perhaps the victory at AI and at Jericho were just a coincidence or a lucky streak of winning on the Israelites' part. <clears throat> but if we team up with these kings, combine with the forces maybe from the kings up north, we should be able to win. 
After all, they are our flesh and blood. Or perhaps, if you were in their place, you would say, is Joshua going to honor the covenant? I mean, we're just Canaanites, after all. We deceived them. <clears throat> Maybe Joshua will say, good riddance. Maybe those kings can wipe out Gibeon. Then we have one less group to worry about. Is Joshua true to his word? Are we not just aliens from that commonwealth of Israel anyway? Well, tested, they were quickly tested soon after that peace treaty. And look at the response and the request of faith that these Gibeonites had in Joshua. No time was waited. They tracked downhill. Gibeon is a higher elevation than Gilgal, and they sought help from Joshua. There placed no trust in them being a royal city, the walls they had around their city, or any weapons that they had at their disposal. They went as fast as they could to the one that could help him, the one that so recently, despite their internal uh, uh, Opposition. Remember, some of the Israelites have said, well, kill these guys. They're a bunch of liars anyway. But it, they went to the one that had showed them mercy and kindness and let them live. They boldly and earnestly asked for another dose of mercy. They say, come with haste. Save us from certain death and help us. We can see no doubt in them. There was no half-heartedness in their earnestness that they went to Joshua with. They are, as the text says in verse 3, a great city, but they teach us a lesson here, don't they? They have no confidence in the flesh. They have no confidence in their own ability, as the Apostle Paul warns us about repeatedly, Philippians 3. With that bold request, they would test the loyalty the resources and the power and the covenant-keeping God of Israel. How quickly, brothers and sisters, do we run from God when we have troubles? That we rely on our own strength, our own wisdom, insight, abilities, money, to name a few. Isaiah 40, 29. He gives the power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he gives strength. Paul, <clears throat> Paul, speaking about the one that Joshua points to, the Lord Jesus, says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The Lord asks us to call upon him in the day of trouble, and he says, I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. We see that with much confidence they came to Joshua. Of the little they had known of him, they knew that he was merciful and that he had kept his word and spared their lives. This is a great example of what they do here. They're pleading and they're finding refuge in the God of Israel through the mediator, as it were, Joshua. It's a great picture of the gospel of Christ. They cast their cares, their frights, and their worries on him, for he cares for them. Great example of prayer that should be in our lives. A.W. Pink, who has a 
nice commentary on Joshua, writes, they came to Joshua empty-handed. They were beggars, but were acquainted with the goodness of Joshua. They spread their case in front of him and say, save us, help us. Psalmist David writes in Psalm 38:22, bow thine ear to me, deliver me speedily, be thou my rock, for an household of defense, save me. Hebrews talks about the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, seeing that we have a high, great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we, not, we do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Boldly, speedily, come to him without a doubt. Jesus, like our Joshua, is never too late. If he lets us wait for an answer, it is for a good reason. And it's always for our good. Some thought he came too late to Lazarus' funeral, but he wasn't. His name and his power was glorified. And it also shows us once again this section, Satan's war against all those that have made peace with God. At that instant, we are at war with Satan. What's Joshua's response? <clears throat> Was there any hesitancy in Joshua? Did he linger and wait a few days? Perhaps was kind of hoping that they would get out of his hair. After all, they were former enemies. Did he say, well, you can fight your own battles. I've got enough on my hands. Well, we see no such thing. In fact, it looks like the very next thing he did was go up to Gideon that very night. That very night. Israel does not use them, but they need Israel. Imagine that, these, imagine that these people he had made a covenant with under deceitful purposes would come to you and now expecting you to risk your life, your life for them, to put your men, the army, at risk for them. It shows Joshua's great honor and great resolve. It shows him that he was a type of shepherd, the sheep, wasn't he? He sought out and he sought those that were in trouble. <clears throat> Our former sins are no longer held against them and their former sins are no longer against them. Isn't that a, a great truth? He could have said, well, yeah, but remember, teach them a lesson, you know, they're all come, but I'll teach you a lesson. But he went up right away. Our former sins are no longer held against us. There is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Let us often and freely go to him for help. So the track up from Gibeon, from Gilgal to Gibeon was about 20 miles. It was uphill 
It was at night. As I said, he went at once to seek and help those sheep. And he went straight into battle. He treated these Gibeonites as though they were any other tribe, Matthew Henry notes, as though they were fellow Israelites. And Pink here has another helpful note, and he says, how does picture the Savior, who, when when he was called upon by Jew or Gentile, and when they asked him to come, he came. He came to Nicodemus by night. He still had an ear for the dying thief at the cross when he was in the great pains of the crucifixion. And this high priest is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're sometimes easily put off by doing something if it takes a bit effort, maybe too much time, maybe too much money, or in Joshua's case, he lost a night of sleep. Are we eager to serve the Lord? Even if it costs us something that is valuable? Are you serving his body at whatever capacity the Lord has given you, whatever gifting the Lord has given you? Are you growing your talent or are you burying it? Notice again, in verse 8, that he is encouraged by the Lord as he had done before in this book. The Lord says to Joshua, Fear not, for I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall no, not a man of them stand before thee. Once more he is reminded that the Lord himself, the Lord of glory, is with him. And that victory is most definitely his. In case he had any lingering doubts about helping these Gibeonites, about the five kings that were there waiting for him. He got his stamp of approval from the Lord to help these poor folks and a promise. Joshua, as we have studied him, he doesn't seem to be a man given to doubt or to, to fear like Jacob was. Yet he is flesh and blood and subject to the same fears and doubts that we are subject to. And the Lord kindly reminds him and repeatedly tells him not to fear, that victory is on his way. If we are fearful, often it is because we are unbelieving. We're doubting God's goodness, his promises, his plans for our life. And if we linger in this fear, we make decisions based on that, and it can have very serious consequences for us. Think of Israel, I've mentioned it before, but think of Israel wandering for 40 years in the desert in misery and death because of doubt and unbelief and fear. Those are connected. So never think it's easy or a simple thing to say when someone is caught up in fear, do not to fear. Now maybe we go like, ah, oh, that's kind of a cheap thing to say. Don't fear, but we ought to. It's the word of God. It's the promises to the saints. And we are slow and prone to wonder and to easily forget. And we need to be reminded often. That's why we need to be in his word. In verses 9 to 10, we see once they arrived at the place, he started to fight. 
Probably the five kings had not expected such a hasty response from Joshua. Perhaps they'd even thought, well, it's unlikely he will show up to these guys. This will be an easy victory. Notice that divine assurance was given to Joshua, not to fear and to, to do the work we should do, but that does not make him sit idly by. He did not thought, so I'm going to sit here and watch the fireworks from a distance, that type of thing. He got involved, he fought the battle, and he fought hard. But he fights with the Lord's promise in mind. And then we have victory. Ralph Davis says nicely, God's comfort cannot sedate, but calls us forth, calls forth his servant's activity. Let's remember this for ourselves. All the promises and the comforts and the, the gifts that the Lord gives us in our life are given for a purpose to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray to be delivered from temptation, but we, we're not going to go near it. We pray for daily bread, yet we have to work for it, even though the thorns and the thistles are against us. So their destruction came upon them suddenly. The false peace of these kings that they had hoped for was brought to nothing. We see in this battle that the Lord is prevailing over his enemy. He fights for his people. The Lord fights for his people. Exodus 15 verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Psalmist 24, 8, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O everlasting gates. Lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. And we see this king of glory here, don't we, on this battlefield, showing himself coming on the scene with great might and with great power. Yes, Israel fought. But the Lord is central to the, bottom, to the battle. Verse 9 and 10 shows that they are scattered and slaughtered by Israel. There's a great panic. They run different ways. And again, once again in his book, stones show up. We've seen it about four or five times. As stones are important in this book. We see stones of memorial. We see stones upon the sinner of Achan. We see stones on on uh, the law of God written on stones, we see the stones of the collapsed walls of Jericho and Ai. And now we see great hailstones coming from heaven. They come fast, they come furious. The miracle was not only that they came at the right time and place, but they were amidst the battle. They were like a laser-guided Missile, and they only sought out the enemies of God. None of the Israelites was hit by them. Hail had been one of the plagues in in Egypt. It had been hit hard by hail, and the land of Goshen was not hit. And some skeptic, like Pharaoh, may may say, "Well, it was just a local storm." Now this was an unmistakable sign. The Lord had done it. He spared Israel from being hit and only fell 
on his enemies. Those that fled north and south met their end this way. And beware, sinner, beware, sinner, that if you can outrun God, that if you can flee from God, there's thousands of ways he can get to us. <clears throat> Job thirty-eight twenty-two. Has thou entered into the treasures of the snow? You know, Job, God is speaking to Job, and he's got this long list of questions. And he says, Has thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Has thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? So we see that these were weapons used from the sky. And even Job, who wrote before Joshua, mentioned this. They were great, they were selective, and they were extremely effective as to who they hit. The gods of these nations often were the sun god, the moon god. They had all kinds of gods of nature. And now these gods had failed to be their protection, but they had worked against them. The idolaters had once again been put to naught. And the Lord shows that he is the, the supreme creator who rules over his creation and uses it as he pleases. Often behind these gods were demonic entities, and they proved themselves to be useless, liars, and without hope for those who trust in them. He used the water in Noah's day. He used the fire from heaven in Sodom and Gomorrah, and here we see major hail, a hail storm that was one of the few times you would welcome a hailstorm in the midst of a battle like this. Verse 11 says, More died of the hailstorms than of the sword. Yes, they had very hard. They had skipped a night of sleep. But the Lord, in the end, had helped them. Spurgeon says, <clears throat> Where we do most, God does more. Yes, he does all. God rewarded them for their willingness and the victory was great and glorious and yet it was not the end of it was it in verse 12 we see Joshua calling upon the Lord for the sun and the moon to stand still he prays to the Lord that the sun might stand still give him more daylight until the victory was done he prays to the Lord that the sun and the moon would stand in the place where they are now so he could finish the job that he had been called to. And so it happened. As soon as he prayed, they both stayed, stood still, and the sun did not go down for about a day, verse 13. Now this account, you can read all kinds of commentators on it, and many different explanations. Some liberals, of course, outright deny it of any possibility of such an event. Some argue it was a a local weather phenomena. Some say it was a poetical way of writing that it was just a very great day. Something, there was some kind of refraction happening and that the day was much longer. Of course, the writer of Joshua writes from a phenomenological point of view of what he sees. We also talk about the sun rising and the sun setting we know the sun stands still and the earth rotates around it. But 
He speaks about in the language of what we observe. One thing is for sure. It was an unmistakable miracle. It was supernatural. Certainly not a regular day. And it gave the victory to Israel. Again, Spurgeon says, We should not be surprised that God uses his creation as he wishes. He is the watchmaker. He can alter his watch. He can do so. And how he did it is no question for us. We may rest assured that he prolonged the daylight by the wisest of possible means. It is not for us to try to soften down miracles, but to glorify God in them. Think of all the miracles that befell on the Egyptians alone. The very laws of nature that God has made for a season had to be altered, put aside. Think of the darkness that was in Egypt and, and, and there was normal light in Gosen. The water that stood up, the Red Sea, like a wall, like there was an invisible sheet of glass in between. The locusts, the flies, the frogs, they did not cross the border into the land of Gosen, <clears throat> even though they were neighboring to Egypt. So there's no reason to take, not to take this miracle literally. God has made the law, laws of nature and he's not subject to them. He can change them. Otherwise, there would be boundaries to his omnipotence. And as much as we stand in awe of God, how he changes sometimes his laws around, like we see here, should we not be consistently and constantly amazed of the living world that is around us, of providence, of the splendors of nature for the Every time you watch a nature program, there's a new animal I've never heard of with amazing capabilities. Think of how he feeds everyone and always creatures each and every day, as the psalmist spoke about. Think of how the, the body works. Is that not a miracle? Think of the seasons and the vastness of God's creation. I had to think this week of, a, I used to have an aquarium as a kid, and uh, when the, the, the fish had young ones, there was, uh, you could feed them with a brine shrimp, and you could buy brine shrimp eggs, and they were extremely small, like this probably 500 in a millimeter. And they would sit on your shelf for a couple of years, and you'd add them in the water, put some salt in it, and put a bubbler in it, and in two days, there would be brine shrimp in that jar. It's amazing, right? It's just one, one little side of his creation. But they were as dead sitting on the shelf for all those years. You put them in water, and they, they come to life. Verse 14, And there was no day like it, or before it, and after it, that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. The Lord fought for Israel. Notice that the writer says there was no day like it, before and after, that the Lord hearkened, listened to the voice of a man. God listened to prayer. That's what the writer is actually amazed about. Robert Murray McShane, a great saint, said, A man is what he is on his knees before God, and nothing more. The prayer of Joshua shows his zeal, his boldness, his confidence. 
in God. <clears throat> it was especially inspired by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, but in confidence he called out to God. We can call out to him who spoke the universe into existence. It's always amazing that little phrase in Genesis 1, he made the stars, although it's written as though it is some afterthought. God had promised that he would exalt Joshua in the sight of his people, and the Lord did so. And once again, it would strengthen his army. The miracles that had now been given, think of the, the miracles of you know, human endeavors, the walls that collapsed, the, sol- the sun and, and the moon, and then on earth, the waters that stood up in the Jordan. Imagine the faith that that would, the, the, the increase of faith that would give. Imagine these men, the army coming home to the camp back in Gilgal and telling the stories to the kids. How was the battle, Dad? And they told the story, what they had just witnessed. Parents tell your children of the greatness of God, his holiness, his works. Deuteronomy 3.24 O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness, thy mighty hand, for what God is there in the heavens or in earth that, do, that can do according to thy works and according to thy might. Moses asks. Psalmist says, <clears throat> Many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works, which thou hast done, thy thoughts, which are to us words. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Apart from examples of faith, prayer, obedience, trust, this passage teaches us once again that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The five kings' army was decimated and destroyed. The kings themselves, we've not gone there yet, they have but a few hours to live. We'll see that next time. But in the camp of Gibeon, there is peace. Their shepherd was true to his word. The covenant was tested. In boldness they came and had asked, Come, help us. Save me. Come quickly. Also, this chapter shows us that the Lord fights and protects his people. The battle is won by the Lord. Our salvation is won by the Lord. We don't contribute anything. And afterwards, the battles after a conversion, the battles with the flesh and the world and the devil, we need him. We need to say often, come, help me. We're ready to perish. The disciples said in Mark 4, 4 1, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? How is Joshua once again a great picture, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who made the heavens, the earth, and all that there is in, who became flesh and dwelt amongst us? God manifested in the flesh and saves his people for time and eternity. One commentator notes on this passage, and I end with that, It may be said that these Gibeonites, that they were saved twice. First, they were saved from the wrath of God. Then they were saved from the wrath of their enemies. 
So we are saved from the wrath of God and from the wrath of Satan. The Gibeonites were saved by faith, for they trusted in Joshua, in the God of Israel. They determined to oppose Azonidek or die. They were saved by hope, for they looked to Joshua to secure and were not disappointed. So we are saved by faith when we fall at the feet of Jesus and put our trust in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again we see in your word your might and your power and what good you have in store for your people. Father, whatever problems we have in our lives, Lord, whatever issues we deal with, help us to, as these Gibeonites did, Lord, to call out upon thee in faith to ask for help. Lord, forgive our unbelief when we pray. Lord, we've got all the amenities of this world, but in the end, they don't give us security. Help us to be detached from them, Lord, and to trust only in thee. Father, we thank thee for the great Savior, our Joshua. Thank you that he died for his people, secured them, wicked though they were, and that we have that blessed assurance of total forgiveness. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.